Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. Happy holidays to all. It's Thursday night. Time for a brand new episode. I invite you to visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There you'll find direct streaming links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. At the website, you can download some past shows. Please do us a favor, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Last week, we had our continuing series, History of Metal, the year 1980. A couple weeks ago, we did the live Raven from New Jersey episode. That was a good one. And at the beginning of the month, we had the three tremors, Sean Peck, uh, Harry Conklin and Ripper Owens. They came to Rochester and we caught up with Sean. He told us about the three tremors. Tonight's show, we have Frank Bellow of Anthrax. He just released a new book called Fathers, Brothers, and Sons. It's Frank's story dealing with abandonment by his dad, growing up in a really rich Italian household, and how he got involved with Anthrax and touring the world for the last 35 plus years. He's a great dude. It's an excellent conversation. Just want to remind you about some of our media partners. Monday nights, I host a live radio show on thatmetalstation.com. It's a three-hour live radio show. I play tunes. There's a chat room you could get into and talk with me, send me requests, talk to other listeners from around the globe. They're all in there. It's a real good time. Just want to remind you about a kick-ass dual radio show that our buddy Mark James from Mark's Audio Aggression and Mark's Metal Vault does. Friday nights he has a show concentrating on the rare and classic metal and on Saturdays he comes back with Mark's Audio Aggression. It's some lesser known bands new material and new material from some of our classic favorites. Mark does a real good job so we invite you to go back to the website and we have direct streaming links to get in touch with Mark. While you're at the website, sign up for our email list, receive weekly updates on new shows, free giveaways, promotional giveaways, that kind of stuff. Search us out on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. We thank you for your support and we wish you again a happy holiday season. We're gonna hear from Podchaser right now and when we come back, we're gonna have Frank Bellow of Anthrax. I'm the Vernomatic, this is Metal Mayhem ROC. Attention Metalheads! Since we launched in 2019, Metal Mayhem ROC has been the go-to source for metalheads to talk about and hear the music they love. We can't thank you enough for being part of the family. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, hit subscribe so you know when we go live. Plus, tell folks why you like to listen when you leave a rating and review. If you're listening on another platform, head over to podchaser.com and type in Metal Mayhem ROC in the search bar. Hit subscribe, then rate the show and leave a comment on why you get your metal fix from the Vernomatic and his guests. Metal Mayhem ROC. Now, back to the show. 
Our guest tonight is the bassist of the legendary thrash metal band Anthrax, selling millions of albums worldwide, toured the globe way too many times to admit, lifelong New Yorker, dedicated husband, proud father of a 15-year-old son, and now an author. His new book, Fathers, Brothers, and Sons, Surviving Anguish, Abandonment, and Anthrax. Let's welcome to Metal Mayhem, Frank Bello. Hey, Frank, how are you, man? John, I have to live up to that now, man. That's a, some some introduction. Now. I'm worried about it now. Dude. I don't know, but I, I'm okay. Thank you for having me. Bro. Yeah, the resume is getting longer as we speak. So <laughs> congratulations on the book. Thank you. In my case, it's a fantastic listen, even though yeah. your your publisher was kind enough to send me in advance. You know, I start reading your book, any book. You know, the ages catch up for me. I enjoy the Audible book and. It's it just uh, congratulations. Thank you, John. You know, I'm finding more and more people because I did. I, I, I was one of the people. A lot of people asked me to do the audiobook with my voice instead of hiring an actor, but some people do. I found it more interesting for me to, to like live the book and tell you my story through my own voice. So I'm finding a lot of people are uh, liking the whole vibe of um, just me kind of reliving it on audio. I stood, I, I'm kind of I'm, I'm really glad that you. You were listening to it, and you and you liked it the way it came out. I felt like you were in the room with me when you were doing yeah. that reading. Give us the story behind how you started doing the audible reading. What was that like? Well, you know, they you know you have the book obviously, and they pretty much tell you come in for these days. You have this week of days booked in this little studio in this. I went to Manhattan, and uh, you know I, I've done voiceover work before, but. Let me tell you, John, it's a whole different animal when you do a, like a whole book of, of your, your life. You kind of like the whole first day, I kind of was just like reading and I, I didn't really know what to do. And, I, and then I heard it back. It wasn't me. It wasn't me talking. It wasn't me talking to somebody. So I, I asked, asked the, the engineer, I said, can we come back tomorrow? I want to do the whole first day over again. That's what we did. Uh, I, I kind of went back and I, I read the way I wanted to read. I wanted to like dig in and like kind of like have the book the way I wanted. It's like you and I were sitting at a bar and I'm telling you these stories. We're having a beer or a cup of coffee. I kind of wanted it to feel like that. And the people who read the book and now who are listening to the audio are getting that vibe. I thought that was very important. So you sit in this little room and you kind of just talk to the reader. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I hope it comes across like that. Oh, it certainly comes across like that because as a Italian-American myself and coming from a big Italian family, when I'm, <laughs> when I'm listening to that and throughout this story, listeners, Frank, he really emphasizes one family to his upbringing in, in New York City and what that really means to him. Frank, you tell the story. Give us a little insight on what your Italian upbringing was like. Well... Um, my upbringing was, I grew up with a family of five. I was the oldest, my mom and dad, um, you know, they had five kids and my dad, for some reason, whatever reason, we don't know, decided to take off when I was 10 years old. And remember I was the oldest out of the five. So, uh, when he took off, there was no money. My mom didn't even have a license. She didn't have a job. She was just, in those days, the guy went to work and the, the, the mom stayed home and took care of the kids. Therefore, she was left with no money. Uh, we had to go on welfare. So what happened was um, it, we had to move. We lost the house, so we had to move to a lower-income area where um, <laughs> it was rough going to school because it was a new school. And on the way to school every day, I write this in the book, I was getting 
really my ass kicked literally every day uh, by these, these couple of guys, a couple of kids that just, they were bigger than me. They just didn't like me, blah, blah, blah. There was only one path to school, so I had no choice but to go down the same path. And I was just going to school pretty bloodied every day. So this couldn't, this couldn't stay. So I, long story short, we had to uh, decide as a family that it was better for me to move back down to the Bronx with my grandmother, which was, was a safe haven for me, but no pun intended, my safe home. Um, I went to live in that house and where, lo and behold, Charlie Benanti, who was my uncle, the, the drummer of Anthrax, he's my uncle. He lived in that house with my grandmother because we're related. Uh, and we grew up with as musicians. Charlie kind of inspired me to play music at a young age because he was playing at four years old and he was a great drummer back then. So I saw that and I said, I want to play music too. And we grew up to be this whole, this whole uh, Anthrax thing. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of what happened. And in the book, I, I talk about how important my family was and more importantly, how the strong women in my life took the ball that my dad had left and that he had dropped uh, and, and ran with it and, and raised me to be the man that I am. I think that's very important for single moms. Like there's a lot of single moms reading this book, which is great, and they're getting it. A lot of people are dealing with abandonment. There's a lot of, uh, I'm getting a lot of great comments, a lot of great, I'm very, I'm very grateful for the, um, that it's connecting with so many people. Uh, a lot of people are writing me letters about how this is, helping them deal with their, their loss. And there's also stories about loss in this book with my brother, Anthony. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of stories, but there's also a lot of great, a, a lot of great rock and roll stories. Uh, toying with Pantera, toying with Metallica, toying with Kiss. There's a lot of great, uh, so there's a lot of great fun stories in it also. So it's, it's got a little bit of everything for everybody. You're right. There are a lot of great rock and roll stories. And that's what I really liked, how you approach this book, sharing some of those stories touring with Sabbath and, you know, meeting your idols in very impromptu ways. And we're going to save a lot of those for the book. (laughs) That's uh, it's worth getting in there and getting that. But I want you to share, let's see, why don't, why don't you share the Steve Harris story? That one, that one had some meat on the bone. Well, that's a great, thank you. And it's a great memory. And I'll tell you why this happened. Because I went back to the place, just so you know, John. Uh, I recently, last week, I went back to these places for little spots in uh, to post. Because I want uh, want to show people and tell people about the book. I went back to these specific places of where I met some of my, my heroes. So this, this story that John's here talking about um, was in Manhattan, Greenwich Village. Uh, it's, a, it's a studio called Electric Lady. It's a very famous studio called Electric Lady. You could Google it and see Electric Lady Studios. It was made famous by Jimi Hendrix. So many people worked there. So many famous, famous, amazing musicians and, and bands. Uh, what, it so happened that my friend Tom and I had heard that Steve Harris was mixing, I think the record was Peace of Mind at Electric Lady Studios. So what we would do, when we found out our favorite bands would be downtown, for any reason, we would kind of just cut out of school kids don't cut out of school it's not good for you but uh we would just cut out we would just cut out of school and we would go down and wait in front of these places until our heroes came out so we could meet them so we did that with steve harris we went down this is before i ever met him um so we're 15 i think we're 15 <clears throat> maybe 16 years old uh not even 16 but we're just waiting in front of electric lady studios freezing it's it's February, I think it was February, it was freezing outside. We had our leather jackets on, just shivering. We, we 
buzz it. We buzz the buzzer for Electric Lady Studios. There's a camera that comes. You can see right through the window. Camera's looking at, yes, can I help you? Um, yeah, we're here to see Steve. My friend Tom just had the balls of steel. He just said, yeah, we're here to see Steve. They were just two fans. Like, who are these kids wanting to meet Steve Harris? They're obviously not going to let us in. And they, they just said right off the bat, he's not here. He's around the corner eating dinner. And that's all we needed because we were gonna, <laughs> we were gonna go, we were gonna go right around the corner and look in every restaurant because we knew the area pretty well. Lo and behold, we finally found <laughs> the restaurant. We look up, uh, we look up into this one restaurant, and in the window, in the window, and I have this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna post this. I, I actually sh- show the people the window that I saw Steve Harris. We look up, and it's Steve Harris eating dinner by himself, by himself. So he sees us, we're just shivering. You know, he's trying to just eat his dinner. He sees us shivering. And this is how great Steve Harris is. This is how, how, how beautiful of a person he was. He, he looks at us, he sees us shivering, and he gives us the wave sign, come on in, come on in. He waves us into the restaurant. So <laughs> we couldn't believe, Tommy and I looked at each other, oh my God, this is happening. Oh, you know, our dreams have come true. Yeah. We go up, we go up the stairs and we're shivering. We're like, we can't believe this is happening. So. We go, hey, Steve, how are you? We go to meet him, shake his hand, and nice, nice to meet you, boys. Huh, have a seat. He makes us sit down. Oh he, he proceeds to buy us dinner. <laughs> this, this is a dream. I know it sounds fake. Guys and girls who are listening to this, this is exactly what happened. He says, have a seat, and proceeded to give us the menu, and we order whatever we want. We're having dinner with Steve Harris now, asking him every question about the Iron Maiden, what the new, new record's like, what's the next door, every question, he answered everything. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, John, that is one of the reasons it's taught me at an early age that if I ever made a mark in this business, <clears throat> and if I ever had any success, that was the way to treat people. See, he was a one-on-one kind of vibe, and he didn't, there was, there was no, there was no like rock star thing happening there. It was just a really, a really cool guy inviting some people that liked his music in, and he, we just chatted about it. It was so cool, and it taught me a lifelong lesson. And I'll, I'll and now he's my friend. Like, I'm grateful and proud to say that he's my friend. Uh, he still remembers those days, and it was just, it was a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for that time as a as a fan, and it showed me how to be now. And it really, it, it went a long way with me. Oh sure, that was uh, treat those how you would like to be treated. Exactly. Gene Simmons does the <laughs> forward to your book. Now, you have several Simmons stories. You could write a there's there could be a couple chapters just on the Simmons interaction. But let's yes. just uh, let's get, how did Gene? How did you get Gene to do the forward to your book? Well, as you know, we've toured with Kiss a lot. We've uh, been friends and in the book it, it there's a lot of great stories of meeting Gene Simmons when I was younger at that same age of 15 and my friend Tom and I went downtown so Gene knows me for a long time. My, um, as you know, he's one of my heroes uh, mm-hmm. growing up. And he was also a father figure because I always respected what he did. And he, uh, I always thought he was a great dad, a great dad. So uh, my, my co-writer, Joe McIver, uh, we were talking about forward. Uh, who's going to write this forward? There's, we had options, which was nice to have. But he brought out this name, Gene Simmons. I said, no way would Gene ever even think about it. He goes, let me just give him a call. Let me, and Joel, um, Joel gave him a call and on my behalf. And, and, he, and, he, and he said, I would love to do it. And there you go. And he wrote one of the most sincere, beautiful forwards uh, I, I ever thought I could have. I, I, it's just so from the heart. I've never heard Gene 
talk like that alone, just about his, his mom. I, he, I, I met his mom one time with me. She was a beautiful woman, great soul. Mm-hmm. But he also talks about his dad that I never heard him speak about. And it was really beautiful the way he spoke about it and how not having a father in your life, how it affects the child. And it, it really is poignant. It was beautiful. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful to have that. And uh, every time I read it, it's like, wow. And it comes full circle for me from being such a fan of Kiss forever and having Gene write my forward. It's a, it's a big deal to me. Yeah, he was sincere on that. And the stories that you share in the book are are fantastic. Just the con- you. connection you had with them. So, listeners, that those kiss stories are worth admission alone. So, thank you. So, yeah. So, uh, Frank ex- shares the stories with rock stars and whatnot. And there's tons more in there, but more importantly, he starts really sharing the relationship he had in these books or in this book with uh, the people in his family, especially your uncle Joe. Now, you, you were yeah. a, you, you basically during your teenage young man years uh, that uncle joe turned into being your guidance and i have to say i laughed out loud i literally laughed out loud because again folks frank paints such a vivid picture as you're listening to this he was live uh, working in his uh, uncle joe had a deli was it yes yeah, a deli in the bronx yep. deli in the bronx so if you can imagine that you know and uh, this Uncle Joe took Frank under his wing. Of course, it was his nephew. And the one line when he was telling you about, you know, girls and this. And what did he say to you? Just remember, Frankie, you know, you know put a rubber on your hammer or something. like that. <laughs> That's exactly it, John. Exactly. And I like the way you say it, too. It's funny. Well, <laughs> you, somebody else say it. you know, <laughs> tell us about Uncle Joe and um, share with the listeners how long you worked at that deli and what that deli meant to you. Well, uh, again, going, growing up in my grandmother's house in the Bronx, look, there was no money. Uh, you know, I, I went to live with them. So there was really, my, my grandmother fed me and she did everything she could. My aunt, we were all in the house and they did everything they could. But I also wanted spending money. There's no spending money to get the things I wanted, records and stuff like that. So my Uncle Joe had this deli around the corner and he needed somebody. So I started to work there, like 13 years old, I think I was, and maybe even younger. But um, it was just stocking shelves, and then I graduated to, <laughs> to cutting meat. <laughs> I mean, dude, I could make one of the best deli sandwiches you've ever seen. I'm still really, I'm sure I'm still good at that. Mm-hmm. But um, it, was, it was my thing. So I, what I would do is i go to school all day. i come home at 3.30, 4 o'clock. i go, 4 o'clock was my time to go back into the deli, and you work till 8 o'clock. That was every day. And so I would work there every day. And in that deli in the Bronx, it was my, it was showing me the ropes of growing up with my uncle Joe. I spent time with him. He was more like a father figure in the deli. He showed me, told me about girls, all that stuff. Showed me the right way to He really made me develop a work ethic, a really good work ethic. And I thought that was important. Um, and, you know, as I got older, cause I was living, I mean, I was living in the Bronx and, I was also then I got in the band Anthrax at 17 years old. Uh, I was still working in the in the Bronx in the deli because there was no money for those first couple of records. So I would come off an Anthrax tour, the first and second record, I would go right back in the deli just to make money, and and you know he would be fine with it. He said, "Yeah, come on back in. I'll give you these hours," and that's what I did until the band was making consistent money. Uh, and you know what? I cherish those days. I cherish them because they taught me the ropes. That's where I started my dating. 
I started to date some of the girls that came in the deli, you know, who was good. That's where he said, you know, when he saw me talk to a lot of these girls, that's when the famous line came out, hey, wear a, ha- wear a, wear a rubber on that hammer. You know, <laughs> it's a, it was a classic line one day because he, he knew I was going out with this one. I remember this one girl I was dating. Um, and he, you know, he, he knows what I was doing. So he said, hey, make sure you wear a rubber on that hammer because you want any uh, surprises there. Do you, you know? <laughs> do you still have Uncle Joe with you? Thank God I do. And oh, it's funny you say that. We're very fortunate to still have him because he's got he's really seriously diabetic. And um, he just went through a bout and he's on dialysis now. He just had to go on dialysis. So we're praying for the best, of course. He's, he's back home now. I mean, this is all with John. This is all within the last couple of weeks. Um, so I haven't even given him the book yet uh, because he's been in the hospital. I want to you know make sure he's okay. And then I just want to say thank you and just hand it to him. So uh, I think that might be next week. I'm going to get a chance to go over there. Let's do a quick roll call of the family. Uh, your mother still around, your grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother's passed, God rest her soul, uh, Tina Babes. As, and you, for anybody who's read the book, you know how much I care and love her to this day. I know always will. Uh, my mom's still around, thank God. Um, uh, my, my brother, Anthony, obviously has passed. Uh, that's in the book, you know that. Yeah. Um, my brother Chuck, Tony, and, um, and Suzanne are also, they survived. They're good, they're good to go. Um, and, you know, everybody else is okay, thank God. And your wife, Teresa, you, you've been with yeah. her a long time. Is this a. Yeah. Uh, 23 years and counting. Imagine that. 23 years married. So Uncle Joe gave her the uh, thumbs up then. Oh, yeah. No, Joe loves. Look, Joe loves. My Uncle Joe loves Teresa more than he loves me. There's no doubt <laughs> in my mind. And that's fine. I get it. But uh, my, I think my whole family does. Yeah. yeah, so that's it. I'm very tight-knit with my family. I think um, I'm very fortunate to have a strong family, you know, especially after the, the abandonment thing happened. And that's what this whole, this whole book thing, you know, I'm getting so many, so many emails and so many comments about uh, how it's helping them with abandonment and how, because they're seeing if I, this is how I dealt with it. And I only tell my story. I'm not preaching to anybody. But if it can help one person, which I'm finding it has, to like learn how to brush themselves off and move on toward a better day. I think that's really important this time in life. Oh, sure. It's um, got a couple of quick questions. Then we're going to move on to some viewer question or listener questions and some sure. other fun segments. Was Teresa, does she come from uh well, obviously an Italian heritage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does. She comes from New Jersey, Jersey city. And um, her mom and dad are actually from Italy. And they they um, they came over and uh, had a had a family, uh, and they're still with us thankfully. And uh, I just saw my mother-in-law the other night. She's great. She's the best. She's awesome. So tell us about Brandon. Uh, how old is he? What's he up to? Is he following in the footsteps of pops? What's his deal? My my son Brandon. I'm very proud of. He's 15 years old. He's a sophomore in high school. Uh, I just picked him up a little while ago from school. Um, He's, he, he sings he sings more than he does anything. I mean, he's, he's not, he looks at the guitar. I have guitars everywhere around this this, uh, this house. I, I, I try to inspire him no matter what. But he's got a nice little voice on him. I think he wants to be a singer, and that's fine with me. But uh, as long as his, his, his grades are up, he can do whatever he wants. So, um, but what I learned from my upbringing was I'm not going to bring my luggage from my past and hand it to Brandon. I'm going to let him have his own past. I think that's important. Let him be a free spirit. And as long as he gets his grades up and, and he keeps his grades up, 
I'll be, you know, I'm, I'm dad. I just want to be the best dad I can. And I just want to show him the ropes and I just want to guide, guide, guide him the way I, I wasn't guided, you know, uh, with my, from the father I didn't have, I want to be the father that he, he does have. And I think that's very important um, to make, make sure he knows I have his back. And that's my, my goal in life is that more than, more than anthrax, more than anything, more than music, anything that's to be a good father. It's, it's so important to me. And, um, you know, there's discipline. There's also discipline there, but there's also here, here's the right way to do it. This is what I learned from my past. I can help you through this if you like it and give them options. One bit of advice, just experience. Please get off. <laughs> when they're 15, 16, just wait about eight years, Frank, and they'll come back to you when, you know, that young man will say, you know, Dad, I really wish I would have listened to you like a long time ago. <laughs> and you're just like, hey, man, you know, I don't know it all. I just know what I know. And what yeah. you, you what you do with it is your decision. So that's great advice. You know what? And let me tell you, John, I love I love dads. I love good dads. A good dad, man, is more special to me than anything just to see like the, the strong women in my life really raised me. But when I see, when I see a dad really taking it upon himself to be everything he could, it means so much more to me because I didn't have that. So when I see that, I tip my hat to you, John, and all like you. That's well, the truth. Well, thank you. Um, it's good to be in a company with us dads. We're talking with Frank Bello of Anthrax, the new book, Fathers, Brothers, and Sons, Surviving uh, Anguish, Abandonment, and Anthrax. You could pick it up on rarebirdlit.com. Probably visit uh, frankbello.com. What's the socials, Frank? How can people get this book? At the Frank Bello. You can go to my website. You have it there. Rarebird, just so you know, rarebird, rarebirdlit.com has signed. You can get a signed copy with the rarebirdlit.com. It's on my website. You can look. But my socials are at the Frank Bello. Um, and also, you can also get this on Amazon. It's available. And this will be all in the show notes, listeners. So great. All right. The rest of the show, we're going to take a walk down heavy metal memory lane. I have some cuts lined up. Cool. The, the first thing we have is we have uh, listener questions. This comes from Tyler Hahn of Rochester, New York. It's a two-parter. He says, when was the last time he had a bologna on hand sandwich? And mm. can Frank share any Lemmy stories? Mm. Let's get, I'll get to the bologna and ham sandwich first as a deli man, as an experienced deli man, not to sound like a snob or anything. Here's what I learned about a bologna a long time ago from a guy who worked in meats. He told me to stay away from bologna a long time ago. So I stayed away from bologna. So i just so you know, I love salami, a salami and peppers with, um, with provolone on top. You put some, you put some um, spicy, spicy brown mustard on that lettuce, tomato. You're golden. That's it's really delicious. And you know what? You know what I learned, John? Check this out. This is what I used to do in the deli for myself when I, I ate a sandwich for myself. I used to put the potato salad on top of it in the sandwich. You had the, that is golden right there. That's a beautiful sandwich. So yeah, the bologna I stayed away from because a deli man, an experienced deli man, told me a long time ago to stay away from it. But. I think Tyler was referring to in Scott's book. He was talking about they always had a bologna sandwich on hand, sort of like. Oh, you know, I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. Sorry, I I, I went well over my head. I apologize for that. Oh no, that's fine. Uh, any cool Lemmy stories? I know we could go on for two hours on Lemmy oh, stories. Cool. 
Oh, cool. I'll give you one, one good one that's in the book that I love because it's one of my favorite times ever on tour. Okay, so Anthrax, Motorhead, we toured a lot together. Uh, God rest his soul, Lemmy. Love him, love him to death. He's awesome. Um, so we would do sound checks during the day. So Motorhead, I would go watch their sound checks every day because I was fascinated. I was fascinated. I, stay, I stayed on the side of the stage at the monitor board just watching about, I'd say, five or six, six feet from Lemmy, just watching the way, because I'm a student of bass. I wanted to see his picking technique, how he picked the, the certain songs, how he sang and played at the same time, what he did during the, the songs. I was fascinated by it, his sound, everything. I just wanted to learn. I thought it was important. So I'd be there just about every every day. So let me see this, you know, and they, they're grooving and uh, they stop the song, it finishes. And he looks over to me and, uh, and, and that, gl- that great glare that he had, he goes, hey, come here. <laughs> straight out, dude, straight out. I'm on the side and I'm looking behind me. Uh-oh, what did I do? He goes, no, you, come here. So he calls me over in the center stage. Center stage where Lemmy's mic is. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yep, yep. So in, in front of his amps, right? So he has his bass on. I'm walking over very gingerly because I don't know what the hell's going to happen. I walk over, I get in front of Lemmy. He takes off his bass and puts it on me. Puts his bass on me, his live bass on me. And he, he points to his amps and Lemmy fashion, he goes, go. <laughs> so, dude, it was... And I compare this in the book. I, this is what it was like for me. So, you know, the movie Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future? Yeah, that yeah. opening scene with the big speaker, right? Mm-hmm. And he gets blown away. That was me. So I go to I go to Lemmy's amp. Like, I go about two feet in front of, right in front of his speakers, right? And I, I crank it. I put his, uh, the bass on to 10. Then I did an E chord with the bass. Oh, and it was exactly that scene in the movie. I was blown back like three, four steps. Like, what the? And he's just, and I see him, I look to the side and Lemmy's just like, <laughs> just laughing with that little pirate laugh. It was so great. Because so he knew exactly what was going to happen. Was, I said, uh, was it, it was the awesome. uh, Rickenbacker? Yeah, of course it was the, of course it was the Rickenbacker. That's what I was, I was fascinated. Yeah. They have 4,001. Was that the? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dude, it was, it, it was so, it was everything you wanted it to be and more. But because after that, after I was blown away back a little couple of, you know, he's laughing. Then I got to do all my, of course, I started right away. You know, you know I just did um, um, Overkill. I did the song Overkill. Uh, I was just jamming on it. It was, sounded so killer. It was so loud. I still remember that. It was, it was an awesome day. So that was, that's, that's a Lemmy story that I'll never, I'll never forget. It was very special to me. Uh, Lemmy, I've seen the band many times, but, you know, loudest shit I've ever felt. Oh, yeah, oh, dude, come on. Oh, I my love God. It. Next question we have from uh, Marshall Rifflord of the Central New York band Motorlord. He asks, ask Frank, does he think the band will reach out to John Bush on the anniversary of the Sound of White Noise release in 2022? Well, reach out. We're friends with yeah. John. So we're, we're, we're good friends with John. So, yeah, I mean, we have a joint text that we just we keep in touch with. You know, just once in a while, we just get that thing together. We just talk, hey, how's everybody doing? So yeah, everybody's friends. I mean, no, I think he meant. Uh, is the band going to do anything about the white noise twenty twenty? Seeing it's an anniversary, well, or right now what we're doing. First off, I have to tell you, John, I would love to just to tour anywhere, <laughs> anywhere yeah, we, right? This COVID thing, right? But I, I, I can't speak for the future. Look, I would love to. Right, jo- Joey Belladonna is the singer of Anthrax. Yeah. So uh, I don't see that happening. 
I don't, but I never say never. That's what I say. I don't see that happening because we have another anthrax record to put out, mm-hmm. right? And that, that, that has to come before anything. So, uh, and we're working on it now, so which I'm happy to say about. Well, Marshall, I think you're in luck because I'm going to play a little clip. Uh, John Bush was on the Metal Mayhem show about a month and a half ago promoting the new live Salvation. And I, asked, yeah, and I asked him about the anthrax days, and this is what John Bush had to say. John, let's clear up some uh, rumors, loose ends, and other tidbits. Uh, I heard something recently. You threw the idea around possibly doing um, some shows celebrating the anthrax era. I'm trying to make something happen. There's a couple things in the works, but it's just I'm still waiting to find out if if the artists that I might go out and do something with are actually going to do their tour. Again, back to what I was just saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, some things have been pushed back, but there is a couple things in the works, and um, I do want to do that. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I think it's the timing that seems to be kind of right, and um, you know, I love those records, and um, you know, the band doesn't really play any material from that, understandably so. But um, you know, I don't want them to just kind of fall into the vault of nothingness. I would like to, you know, say, hey, let's do some stuff and and have people remember how great those records were, and. Um, and it'll be fun to sing those songs. So it's just a matter of logistics. Again, I'm trying to work some stuff out to see if I can. Um, I've been talking to Paul Crook, who I want to have be part of this this thing, this band, if I do it, and and be really the guy that kind of is the musical director behind it. Me and him have been speaking a lot, and um, and you know we have some ideas for other musicians and. Um, it's just a matter of, like I said, putting it all together. And um, but I'm, I'm I'm open to it, and it's it's no longer really a pipe dream. It's a little it's a little more than a pipe dream. <laughs> well, good because uh, you're right. Those albums, the you know, Sound of White Noise, Volume Eight, the, the, we've come for you all. I love that period. Well, you know, it's um, like I said, I made a, a few more mental steps towards it because I know that it's kind of on me to do it. And um, for a while, I think I was just like, ah, the responsibility on this, because <laughs> it'll be mine. <laughs> yeah. And um, it was probably a little daunting, but I, I'm I'm ready to embrace it now. And if it comes together and it feels right and it, it seems like the right circumstance, I want to do it because it'll be fun. Um, I love those songs and. Um, you know, I love singing those songs and, um, you know, it could be time to you know, have people hear them again in a live setting. And I think it would be uh, fun for fans. So John Bush talking about reliving the uh, anthrax days. Uh, any thoughts on what John's talking about with that? Absolutely. I'd go see it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd totally be, a, I'd totally be a, a, an audience member for sure. I got, Paul Crook. I love Paul Crook. All good. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go yeah. see that. I'll go check it out. I'm sure it's going to sound great. John's singing better than ever. So it's oh, all good. Yeah, he's such a cool dude. You know, we that last Armored Saint record killed. It's awesome. Oh, Punch in the Sky. Oh yeah, dude, come on. Oh, it's, it's... They, they're on top of their game. I'm, I love those guys. They're, Joey Vera. I love. You know, Joey played in Anthrax when I, when I played with Helmet. So we're all really good type friends. You shared that in the book. That was one of the only times you saw Anthrax play when you weren't in the band. I loved it. I had. I remember. I, I think I had a show the night before with Helmet, and um, and the night after Anthrax was playing. It was it was so great. I went and said hello to everybody. Uh, I was on tour with Helmet, but I went to go see Anthrax with Joey playing. I went back. It was just so great. And then we I went, I went to my seat and watched. It was like it was like watching a dream. It was so cool. I, and it was they killed. It was great. It was a great. It was a great show. Okay. Well, we have another friend from your past, Carl Kennedy. 
Yes, Carl. Okay, Carl, uh, he is um, just like everyone else in rock and metal. There's side projects going on. We had him on the show a couple weeks ago. His new band, the 450s, released something, and we had him on, and he was telling them about it. But I reached out to him today. Any message for Frank? He goes, yeah, tell him I got the book. I love it. I think the biggest thing about Frank is he came in when we were recording Spread Into Disease. Uh, What does he say? He came in green. He brought it up to speed in about two minutes and kicked ass, as you can hear from the albums. He's one of the nicest guys. Still sending my love, Carl. Oh, parting shot, he says, tell him I'm working on a book myself, and at some point ask him if he would talk to my editor for me. So... Yes and yes. <laughs> Carl Kennedy uh, is the drummer of the Rods, and he helped the band produce the Spread into Disease. Share us your yes. input on uh, Carl. I, uh, Carl, first off, I, I, have, I have a sweet spot in my heart for him because, uh, as he said, I was very green going into that record. Remember, I was coming as my first record, my first official record I've ever recorded on. I was literally coming from, literally coming from my room, jamming in my room. <laughs> and learning all these songs to actual the recording recording studio which is like a microscope and I felt like I was under a microscope and I was really intimidated and uh, Carl made everything better he made he made me feel very comfortable he was very smart the way he did it I remember I was shaking when I first started going in there because I I was like worried that I was going to mess up even though I knew everything like the back of my hand uh, I remember he gave me a shot of whiskey brought me in the kitchen gave me a shot of whiskey and he kind of straightened me out, and it kind of made me—it made me know that Carl was on my side. So um, it really leveled me out, and, and it showed me a lot. It, and, and I'll never forget him for that. He's an awesome person and yeah. great producer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's see. Um, the name of the show is Metal Mayhem ROC. We're up here in Rochester, New York. We're a pipeline. We were part of those early days. The Metallica guys oh, up here with Kill yeah. 'Em All. Yeah. Give us a little insight on your. Memories of Rochester, any Rochester stories, House of Guitars. I've seen you up here a few times, the Penny Arcade. What do you got? Oh, it's awesome, dude. Look, first off, you know, as I'm, I'm a New Yorker, so I, I relate to everything. We have a singer that's from Oswego, New York, yeah, right? Yeah. Joey, Joey Belladonna's, everything's from, we, we did our, well, I wasn't there for the first record, but we did the second record up there. It, it uh, you know, it's, it was, it's a great, upstate is a different vibe. It's a, it's a complete different vibe. You, you, I think you could get kind of focused. That's what I think when we went up there. I remember, man, that whole first record, it was cold. It was so cold, man. But I, I lived those days again I mean, it, because it was such a special time. It's a lot of good people. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun. Those are great memories of state. So, and Penny Arcade, dude, that was, that was, another, that was another great, uh, just a great vibe in that place. You went in there, it's like, all right, this is where everybody come. That's the place to hang. Good times. Oh, we had our hub. The Penny Arcade was down at the lake at Charlotte. We <laughs> we had the Lakeshore Record Exchange, which was the metal place. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple, Ron and Jackie Stein, opened this place up in 1980. They're retailers, but they didn't know what their inventory was going to be until these two metalheads came in with, armfuls of new wave of British heavy metal stuff. You got to sell Venom. You got to get Raven in here. It was basically, it was like, you know, what Zazula was doing down in Jersey, but up here in Mm -hmm. Rochester, they actually, you know, the Metallica guys came up here, became friends with Ron 
over at Lakeshore with Curcio when they were doing Kill 'Em All. It's just, just the it's so cool. Yeah, great history. Great history. Great yeah. history. So, all right, we unfortunately um, we're going to turn the corner on this, but I wanted to spend a little time tipping the hat to uh, today is the unfortunately the anniversary of the passing of um, uh, Daryl. Dimebag yeah. Daryl and John Lennon of the Beatles. And both of those guys, you have a direct relationship with with Dimebag. And, you know, John Lennon goes without saying. Of course. Um, first, let me get your take on John Lennon, because as a New Yorker and a Metro New Yorker, what was it like that night when he was taken from us? Share your memory of that, Frank. Well, my memory was I was in the Bronx, New York, um, as a New Yorker, and I was in the living room I with Charlie Benanti, with my drummer, Charlie. We were, you know, I, I just remember the, the, that football game was on. Yep. And that's how, we, that's how we found out in live. And Howard Cosell, remember Howard Cosell? Yeah, yeah. And he's, and, he, and he's that famous recording of him saying it. And I remember we looked at each other, no. And I remember just our hearts dropped. It was just... It, it was a, we, we didn't believe it. it that couldn't happen right that couldn't happen especially that time he was coming out with double, the double fantasy the whole thing the, the record was coming out uh everybody was excited that whole thing that that whole thing it was just um it was just surreal nobody wanted that to be ha to be happening and then all the newscasts the whole night after that you were just glued to the tv uh you, because if you if, if you lived in new york you know you pick up the daily news and you see pictures of John and Yoko walking in Central Park all the time. So that was like a normal thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And you, you never think anybody would think like that to take to do something like that, right? But it, it, it took an innocence away. It, it really took an innocence away. And, uh, so I still remember that time in the living room and that, that, that football game being interrupted. It's like, oh, my God, it's this isn't real. Definitely one of our generations where you, you'll never forget where you were, the 9-11, that, yeah. you know. the we're, I'm going to ask you about Dimebag, but first I want to play this clip from Don Jameson. I had a chance to run into him this summer at the Rockin' Pod. <laughs> and, uh, Love Don. Here, let me play this. Hey, this is the Vernomatic Rockin' Pod, Nashville 2021. I have Don Jameson here. Don, I had a hey. chance to, hey, what's up, man? Hey. Had a chance to uh, see you at the Montage Music Hall in Rochester, New York for one wow. of those uh, uh, meet and greets, you, Eddie, and Florentine. We asked Florentine a metal confession. He gave us the night he spent in Dallas hanging out with the Pantera guys. What's your metal confession out of all the road tales? Metal confession? Like, uh, well, I tour with a lot of these bands, so I know a lot of stuff that other people don't know. But um, listen, most of the stuff with Pan, with Dime and Vinny, uh, which, man, I miss those guys every day. I, yeah. A lot of it I don't remember, but but whenever we came to Dallas, man, those guys were hardcore comedy fans. Yep. They used to come see us, and we go to their strip club afterwards and uh, and just hang out all night, and we go straight to the airport from there. But the, the one time I remember the best... Um, and Jim, Jim will only barely remember it because uh, he caught the wrath of the Jägermeister shots. That's where he was going. Oh, did he, did he tell you the whole oh, story? Oh, this is a great story. Oh, okay. No, then I won't repeat it. But, but yeah, but Jim, Jim, Jim got caught up in the uh, black tooth grin shots. That's it. And then, um, and and then Jaeger as well. So, 
Um, there was one shot left. Dime gives him the shot. He goes, Florentine, you have the last one. Now, Jim, you know, played um, special ed on Crank Anchors, uh-huh. which was the, the... Yeah, I remember it. I know it's not politically correct, but the retarded puppet. Okay. And the, with the eyes bulging yeah. out, he looked like the puppet that night. Yeah. Because he was so hammered. His eyes are like hanging out of his socket. And he couldn't drink the Jaeger, which I don't blame him. So he hid it behind a bunch of beer cans while Dime and Vinny were talking, while they were distracted. They get done talking, and Dime just starts sniffing. <laughs> Florentine, where's that shot I gave you? He goes, I did it, Dime. He goes, no, you didn't. I could smell it. It's in the room. Did he find it? He finds it behind a bunch of Coors Light cans, and he goes, why didn't you drink this? And he goes, uh, I didn't want to drink alone. And without missing a beat, Dimebag goes, George Thorogood drank alone. <laughs> That's excellent, man. That's Dime logic right there, man. Thanks that, for your time, man. Thank you, brother. You do a good job. Appreciate your you effort. Well. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a great story. Yeah. 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 Tell us about you and Dime. Just share your memories of him. Well, our history with Dime goes long, long, long time ago. Um, look, he became like the sixth member. I always say this because he played on a few records with us. Uh, touring with Pantera, different animal. That was completely different. Anthrax was never uh, a drinking band, as you probably know. But when we went on tour with Pantera, they taught us the ropes in, in a quick way. And, and you just talked about that story with Jim. And I, I know Jim really well. <laughs> so I, I identify with this really well. Um, I've ducked many a shot with, uh, with many a black tooth with Dime after. Look, and there was times, and I put this in the book. There were times on the Pantera, Anthrax Pantera tour, where uh, after <laughs> I would watch their show, you know, and after that show, it was pandemonium. During their show, it was pandemonium. They would have trays of, of, of Blacktooth trays just everywhere on the stage. People would just be doing Blacktooth, man. So you're hammered. So you go off, the, you, we come off the stage, we go to the, the dressing room, there's Taco Bell, there's bags of Taco Bell in the Pantera dressing room. Bags of it everywhere. <sighs> so it's black, dude, everything bad for your gut was there. It's awesome. So you're sitting, you're eating Taco Bell taco, you're drinking Blacktooth, and all of a sudden somebody would yell out, Casino! And we find the nearest casino, dude, and it'll be the fucking party, the party rocking bus. You couldn't believe what it, blasting. Imagine everything you think in that party bus, blasting fucking metal, just blasting every Van Halen, anything, blasting. Black Tooth's going crazy. We get to the casino, we stumble out, go to the tables, take over the tables. They're bringing us, there was one, there was one casino, I remember this, John. There was one casino that we were, we were spending a lot of money. And we had the whole table, drinking a lot of booze, blah, blah, blah. And I think Dom said, I'm hungry. He goes, I'm going to get me some McDonald's. They had McDonald's delivered to the blackjack table, dude. I've never seen that in my life. We had McDonald's delivered to, and we ate, I was eating a fucking quarter pound of cheese playing blackjack. It was ridiculous. The best times of my life, they were the ultimate party band, but they played fucking the heaviest of music. They had everything that you want in a band. The fun the, the 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 rock and roll thing, the great music, the great songs, the great show, they uh, they should still be here. They, Diamond Vinny, they were like the they were angels that were put on the earth to make people feel good. I feel that, and um, I, I I still miss every second of being with them. I, I I value every second that I had the chance to be with them because I really cherish it. It was a great time. Uh, I'll always remember it. They were they were great great friends. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you another anecdote here. And this is how great Pantera was. Anthrax were on tour with Pantera during the holidays. It was I remember it was Thanksgiving. 
And we were just going to Anthrax, you know, as we, I think we were in Dallas. Anthrax, we were just going to go to a restaurant. These guys put on a, a spread of food for us, and they, they hired this, this big catering place, and a bunch of food was, was brought out by the families. It was delicious, dude. So we had this big family thing, Anthrax Pantera, in Dallas. It was just such a beautiful gesture for them to do. They made us feel at home, and that's why they'll always be, they'll always be family to us, always. So it's, uh, I, I just want people to understand how great, aside from the band, it was great, how great of people and family people they were. And you just, you don't get that. You don't see that a lot. And they, they were just the best of the best. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Again, you sit here and you listen to Frank talk and you feel like you're there, you know, and I can't emphasize enough. That's the same feeling you get when you listen to this book. One question about with the band and what you just said about how it was back then. Now, you've taken a few years off because of COVID and the machine has been quiet. You know, everything has come to a screeching halt. Yeah, can you rev it back up, seeing that the landscape is different? You know, you used to re- conceive an album, record it, tour. Do you have the energy to keep, the emotional energy to keep doing this in that capacity where you are in your life now? Well, John, in a real honest way, I can be honest with you, and I can say everybody in the band Anthrax is biting at the bit to get back to this, doing exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. I mean, biting at the bit. We played, uh, we played a bunch of festivals. I think we did nine shows this year. Nine shows for Anthrax, which is insane because we've lived on the road all our lives. You only do, and th- well, thankful to do those nine nine big shows, but you have to understand. We're, we're, we are that machine. We have to do that. It's like a shark. You have to swim to survive. Mm-hmm. We, we have to do that. So I think we're just, you know, we're just getting the right record together. And I think everything will work out. And I, I look, I believe, I believe I'm positive in, in, in the future. So uh, humanity has to continue. Metal has to continue. It will continue. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think there's a lot of, I'm friends with a lot of great bands. A lot of the great bands, they're also saying the same thing. They're all ready to go, just wait, waiting to be told when. That's it. So the future is bright, man. couple quick uh, house cleaning notes. Um, my mother, I was telling her about this. She goes, ask Frank if their family called it the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. I love that. I uh, love that, dude. Ask him if, uh, while well, she said, uh, Grandma Bonante, how were the Pizzelles? And Pizzelles what- are delicious. Oh, you dunk the My grandma, she used to put the sprinkles on the top, the, oh, the, the, the little ball sprinkles, you know? Oh, oh yeah. So good. <laughs> All right. The book again is Fathers, Brothers, and Sons Surviving. Anguish, Abandonment, and Anthrax. Frank Bello. Frank, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. John, this was great. Great questions. I, I, I feel like we are just hanging out. We weren't even doing an interview. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, remember, uh, one quick question. Uh, anthrax. Yeah. Um, what's going on with Anthrax? Uh, you have the 40th anniversary YouTube series on YouTube. That's fantastic. And thank an- you. another thing, Danny Lilker. He's our boy up here in Rochester. I just saw him a couple weeks ago. Love Danny. Nuclear Assault had an on-off show up at the Photo City Music Hall. You know, he's doing well up here. Great. Great to hear that. What's going on with Anthrax? Uh, just writing a record. As honest as I could be, um, all, we're digging in. 
uh, as, as, you know, like, well, holidays we're taking off for, but we'll be right back at it in, in January and, um, and digging in. We, we, we've been writing and you know us, we, we, we live the songs. We kind of have to make sure we percolate them, make sure they're the right songs we want to put out. But uh, I'm hoping to have a record out next year sometime. All right. Well, good. When, when it comes out, we'll do this again. Best Absolutely. Of, best of luck with the book. Best of luck with your family. Congratulations on your son, your wife. Thank you, John. Thanks, thanks for the great questions. And thank you for the kind words for the book. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Enjoy the holidays, bud. You too. Happy holidays to you. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE TV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.